Welcome to another episode of Ask Canadian Six. I'm joined today by my co-host, Harman Condola. Harman, how are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. How are you, Jaspreet? We're good. We're uh, I'm in Ontario. I'm, we're not. Um, we had some forest fires, but we're not in a heat wave or um, overburdened by forest fires right now. So so far as Canada goes, we're doing all right. Yeah, here in Alberta, we had forest fires from BC, Saskatchewan, and from the U.S. that kind of settled in after we had a heat dome. So it's been uh, a, a week of uh, two, two weeks of a lot of climate change uh, and the realities of climate change. I heard, I mean, and, and the human impact of climate change is so difficult to to understand. The I heard this really heartbreaking story of a couple of different First Nations that were evacuated in Canada and. The buses, the flights, and the hotels that are involved in evacuating people don't accommodate pets. So dogs and cats and everything else, just they just get left behind. So a lot of love to people who are um, dealing with this and a lot of love to their extended family members and pets as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's, yeah, let's chat about uh, today. On today's episode, we are going to talk about a few different things. We're going to start out by looking at something that is front and center of what the World Sick Organization is doing right now. We're going to look at Afghan Sikhs and Hindus. We are going to talk about some of the Seva going on in Punjab right now and the impacts of that. We're going to take a look at spy software and the Canadian government, as well as, as um, the relationship with the government of India and all that fun stuff. And then we're going to take a look at the National Summit on Islamophobia and Canada and what that means for Muslims, what that means for Sikhs, what that means for Bill 21. Afghan Sikhs. The World Sick Organization has been working on this for a couple of years now, longer than that with the Manmeet Buller Foundation. Um, we were a part of bringing over one group of refugees from Afghanistan. And we were then, um, I remember about a year and a half ago, we got the devastating news that uh, Gordwara had been under a terrorist attack. These are folks that we know. These are people that we talked to. Uh, Balpri Singh, our lawyer, got on the phone with them, was with them as they were mourning, was with them as they were um, doing their final rites, and more bombs went off. And we have been lobbying nonstop to try and get um, Sikhs and Hindus from Afghanistan into Canada. And the specific ask has been that we have a program that helps settle them here. And I've said this on podcasts before, and I'm just repeating it for folks who are maybe hearing about this for the first time. This is something that the Sikh community would entirely fund. It's something that we would entirely support. And the only thing that we would need from the Canadian government would be um, to help with that process. And so it's, it's a very real thing, and it's something that can be done, and it's a matter of life and death for people that we actually know and people that we talk to. There's been an interesting new development, and Harvey, maybe I'll let you fill in folks on that. Uh, what's the Canadian government been, been up to after they've been telling us that they can't help us with this? Yeah, so the Canadian government came out um, on you know this past week and announced a, a program to assist with Afghan interpreters and helping them to resettle 
and get refugee status within Canada. So there's now, you know, a clear mechanism and an understanding by the government and an admission by the government that there, this situation has become dire um, as the Taliban advance, as the situation in Afghanistan deteriorates, and that there is a need for them to actually step up and immediately do something for those that um, help the Canadian Armed Forces, which, I, from a World Sick uh, Organization perspective, is something that we welcome. Um, you know, this is something that we had flagged earlier as well when we had gone back to advocate for, you know, a program for the Afghan Sikh and Hindus. Um, so, from our perspective, this solves the one barrier that the government had put before us, which was, well, you know, what, what does the pathway actually look like? And, you know, what would the logistics look like? Well, the government solved its own problem. So now, you know, we've renewed our calls for them to actually go and support the remaining 200 Afghan Sikhs and Hindus who are still uh, on the ground. And you have to remember, these, this, this group of, you know, 200, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very, very small um, you know, group of people and um, all basically kind of in and around the, the Gordora there at, um, I, 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 I'm going to butcher the name, but Karte Parvan. Um, and it was, it was so sad to, to read uh, the statement of the president, Gurnam Singh. He told uh, Times of India just yesterday that, uh, you know, he was hopeful that the government of Canada would also rescue them along with the Afghanis who had been helping them at all this time. And so you can, it, you know, the desperation is clear. I mean, even a few weeks ago, there was some great reporting um, where, in a few days ago, Times of India, um, where the Afghan Sikh and Hindus were saying, you know, help us before it's too late. And that's what it feels like. You know, while they're living in Kabul, um, you know, and, and presumably safe, they don't know for how long and, and you know, what the future holds. Um, of the four, uh, of the five Gordonas in Kabul, four are closed and, you know, it's only Gordon Akarte Parvan where they still are and, and, and are located. So, you know, right now there's some, some, some work to be done to kind of push on the government. I mean, earlier this week we saw um, the World Sick Organization along with the Namit Singh Pudlar Foundation and uh, Khalsa in Canada come out with um, the renewed call for the special program. And so it, it's interesting that, you know, just days later, um, the government actually announces its its um, plan for the interpreters, but leaves out um, the Afghan Sikh and Hindus, you know, on behalf of who we've been advocating for for, for so long. Um, very, very. Yeah, I don't. I don't actually think it's. I don't think it's like uh, that interesting at all. The timing, actually, because I was I the. I was listening to CBC and some of the Canadian soldiers who relied on the interpretation of these folks from Afghanistan were one of them was on uh, my favorite CBC show as it happens. Shout out to Carol off. I think she's the best CBC host ever. Um, but he was saying that these are people that fought alongside us. He like, and I, I don't support the mechanisms of war and it. It's so complicated to even try and understand what happened in Afghanistan and have a, have an informed stance. But from his point, this was someone who had was, he said they're, they're Canadians to me. He said they fought alongside me. They translated with me. They wore Canadian uniforms. They slept with us. They ate with us. And now when um, America is pulling its troops out of Afghanistan, there is a power void that is being filled by terrorism. And we are watching these folks who 
Canadian soldiers consider, for all intents and purposes, Canadian. And I'm listening to it. And these people are, um, these soldiers who had worked alongside these people were putting forward their own money and their own communication. They were sending Western Union transfers. They were like, how can we get you to safety until the Canadian government figures out how to, because they're, they put their lives on the line for Canadians. The fact that I was listening to this and I'm thinking, oh, the Canadian government has no plan to help people who served Canada, who are considered Canadian, who are, um, and and their Canada's own military is on CBC shaming them for a lack of action. What what chance do we stand? We're, we're over here saying, do this because it's the right thing to do. And we don't have this like, our folks are just, you know, they're just regular folks dying of terrorism. They're not people who who did anything for Canada. And we have this idea of like a worthy refugee and our folks are not going to fit that narrative. And we have been relentless and we have been told over and over and over again that you can't send direct flights to Afghanistan. We can't bring people over here. We can't do this. The logistics are too hard. And as soon as Canada was being shamed, and unfortunately, I think this has been, uh, in terms of lobbying, this has been a pattern I've seen all too many times. You can ask and ask and ask and get nowhere, and then you can turn to the media and you can shame and things get um, solved immediately. Like when WSO um, did the, for the RCMP did accommodations for officers during COVID. So it's the same kind of thing where you ask and ask and ask and nothing, and then you turn to shame. And all of a sudden, within a couple days of me hearing that interview, Canada was like, oh yeah, we got it. We're going to get them out. Like, all of a sudden, the logistics are not an issue. All of a sudden, all the other things are not an issue. And so this thing that we have been relentlessly asking for, for a couple years, where we have been successful, where we have shown as a community, we've already brought over refugees from Afghanistan. Munmeet Buller Foundation has put so much work into this. Now, one of the things they were saying to us wasn't possible, which is we can't, we just can't get them here. We, we're suddenly being shown is possible uh, when they will it and when they want it. And so this, um, this is happening. And so it's one of those, another one of those things that WSO does that is not straightforward. Um, we did, we ran a COVID clinic. It was amazing. You put shots in arms. It's so easy to understand. And then something like this, where you say for two years, we've been meeting with government officials, we've been publishing letters, we've been working with Mamipola Foundation, we've been working with the United States. Like It's so much more, uh, it's so much bigger. It's not something that fits in a tweet. It's not something that fits in an Instagram post. And it's the kind of work that we need to keep chipping away at. So if you do want to check out the full statement that um, WSO made. It's in the press release section at worldsec.org. And my ask would be to folks who are listening is because this is not some the type of advocacy and lobbying that fits easily into a tweet, that you get to know the complicated situation and you have these complicated conversations with folks you know, because they're just, they're people we know. And this is not something that's like far away and abstract. This is really close to home. Seva in Punjab. The best of times, we can assume that folks are doing seva with their money and their mind and their body to help rejuvenate and revive some of our historic structures. Fortunately, it's not always this straightforward. And whether it's um, intentionally or through apathy, some of our biggest historical landmarks got lost. 
is past couple weeks, we saw um, the excavation of a site near Darbar Sahib, Harmandir Sahib, and they were digging and they found these tunnels that go under Darbar Sahib. And I've been going to Darbar Sahib since, um, my goodness, since I was a teenager and I go every couple years. And in my short lifetime, I have seen what I call the Disneyfication of Harmandir Sahib and Darbar Sahib. It was a complex that was so beautifully and so intentionally designed. Um, the city came right up to the Prakarma. It was designed to be impenetrable. Like there were multiple complex pathways that went to the Prakarma. And everything was, it was so beautiful. It was so intentional. There was so much architectural significance. The architecture in and of itself is is political. Um, and now it's essentially, if and if folks have gone, they've seen it. There's like a big, there's like a parking structure. There's a big runway just going up. Like you could, and I say this knowing exactly what it sounds like, you could literally drive a tank right up to the Basab. There are these little like, metal barriers that pop up and come down at the push of a button and the Sangat are not allowed to bring their cars up or uh, even like rickshaws and stuff can't come up close but if the security guards like they get to decide when those metal um, pop-up thingies come down and and they can let anyone in that they want into that big pathway there are like statues there are all of these things and it uh, there are facades the shop fronts like the shop owners that have been there for generations with their families now have these fake shop fronts so it looks like an old timey it's a theme park and the we've continued in a trend towards construction that gets rid of the very intentional and very historic things that were there so yeah if you um get a chance, make sure you look at some of the pictures of these tunnels that came up during the Karseva. And there was quite a, a global response and, and a lot of varied responses to um, what folks thought when they saw this. Herman, what did you think? You know, I, like you, I think over the years watching the, and, and I think that word is perfect, which is the Disneyfication um, of and and the area surrounding it, it, you know, it's been disturbing because now, you know, when you head down and you, you go through, you know, the gullies leading up to um, seeing kind of like this uniform, you know, very kind of, um, you know, looking at these very artificial facades that now house, um, you know, a Domino's and, and a Pizza Hut. Um, there, there is this um, disappointment because, you know, you've lost so much in terms of architecture, but in that architecture, a reflection of identity and, and so much more. Um, I remember back in 2019, uh, just breathe if you, you'll, you'll remember this as well, when there was a controversy, controversy with the demolition of some part of uh, Darshani Diori, right? Which um, at Gordura Tantan. And that was, you know, I remember that was one of the first times that the controversy around Karseva had gone viral online where, you know, they were taking down portions of that entrance and people were able to kind of stop this, but it brought light to kind of, you know, what this kind of um, industrial, this construction industrial complex that, that exists around, you know, doing the renovation works or doing Karseva. I mean, there's, there's millions and millions of dollars and rupees uh, donated by Sangat for the renovation and restoration of Gurukar. And what's happened is, you know, what we've seen over time, which is Gordore all start to look alike. 
you know, they they all have, you know, very similar sprawling marble structures, but there's so much that we've lost in the process. And and I think that's the the saddest part when we see what happened in this past several days is, you know, the question is not just, you know, there's something there and, and there's a history there that we want to know more about, but the question is, well, what else have we lost? Even as a, as a kid, I, I remember, you know, my first journey to Hajur Saab and seeing Karseva, um, you know, uh, volunteers, Sevadars down there, you know, demolishing buildings to build parking lots. And, and, and the pain that now you think back and say, what was it that they demolished? <laughs> you know, what, what have we given up uh, for that? And, and it's some of what they do is actually doesn't make sense even with modern guidelines of architecture or good urban planning or, or good landscape design. I mean, if you look at the new um, entrance to Darbar Saab, um, which is completely, you know, all hard, hardscape, you know, it's all marble, it's all concrete. Uh, what we've seen in the past several years is that you'll see flooding there because there's no, there's no place for water to go. Um, you know, where you would have had green, um, you would have more natural and, and, and more green infrastructure. You would have, you know, dirt and trees that could absorb this. You don't have that anymore. And so instead we have these massive sprawling areas of open white white marble that under the hot sun just burn your feet and don't provide any protection for people. And I mean, it, it's almost by changing the architecture, you've almost changed the nature of the space from being one where people can seek, you know, some salvation, some respite to actually now doing the opposite of, of you know, being a place that is unbearable to kind of walk through in a lot of ways. And I, I think that's, to me, one of the harshest things that I've noticed just as a lay person who's, who's been there. And so, I think there needs to be a bigger investigation in terms of how we go about doing restoration and how these contracts are, are being um, allocated and what those contracts look like. You know, there, there, there needs to be, um, you know, a convening of experts who can actually go back and say, well, here's what restoration actually should look like rather than, you know, looking at it from a perspective of how do we ensure, you know, we get more people into the Barsab or, or drive more, you know, uh, donations or that I, I think you know when we look at it that's a huge component of how they're looking at design for the bus up I mean one of the biggest recent projects there was you know the building of a massive parking garage and they you know they tore down uh, historic buildings to build uh, a car park yeah I'm you know, unfortunately, you know, I don't really care where cars go. <laughs> I care about my history more than I do. I do the convenience of people who want to want to attend, um, you know, uh, the bus stop. And I think that's where we need to start from, right, is is to, you know, it's the starting point shouldn't be people's convenience. The starting point should be the preservation of our history and our identity. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many things that like, it was, I mean, it was, if you, you can keep going back further, it wasn't meant to be entirely covered in gold. You weren't meant to have branded microphones and gold fans. And that doesn't actually, these decisions we make don't align with Barney. If you um, like go back and you think about what the original, how the Gurus made it, how perfect they made it and how much it was in, like, if you think about the trees and you think about the humility of the structure and you think about the fact that you actually go down towards the Basab, um, and then the Guru is elevated. Like every single one of those things has meaning. And there's no, I mean, Guru Sab says, and, and Barney, there's no point in like gold and mansions if you're forgetting Vaiguru. And and these like very like humble places become everything 
if they have that nam and that bani in them. Um, so we're, and not that the gurus were, I mean, the, the gurus demonstrated that small scale capitalism was okay, but I'm not sure that uh, what they would have made of this late stage, everything being covered in gold and having broadcasting rights to the kirtan that's coming out of the Brasaib and, and the marble and the gold. Even if, um, I don't know if, have you seen the, um, like I take, GT Road, when you come in, there's like a gate and it's it's like a massive golden, it kind of looks like their Barca. Yeah, no, I'm not familiar with that. But, um, you know, it's 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 interesting because like it, it now has become so much about, you know, the superficiality, right, is just to make yeah. things look good rather than, you know, I think the deeper importance. But it, it just, I think there's just a lack of, especially in the diaspora, the understanding of, you know, the Carceva Valle. It, they, they enjoy massive amounts of popularity. Like there, there's no doubt um, yeah. that it, within the Qom and within the Pant, it is a very difficult conversation to have. I mean, just recently, like Delhi Gordora DS, DSGMC, Delhi Sikh Gordora Management Committee, you know, handed over, you know, a bunch of gold and jewels to Baba Bachchan Singh Karsevamale for the construction of a hospital. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a serious question to be asked, like, is you know what what how much money are we actually giving them? What are we what are we giving them in terms of actual value? Um, people, if you if you make that statement, there's going to be people who are going to think that that's controversial to say that there should be accountability and financial transparency. But given the fact that Karsevavale don't actually publish their accounts, don't actually tell us you know how much money they're coming in and where it's going, I, I think right now and, and there should be no controversy if. There is something, you know, it, when they're doing their recently, look with the with the, the tunnels. Why is why is this controversial that people should stop this and say, well, no, we need to know exactly what this is and why this is being demolished. There should be no controversy around that. Um, and anybody who's raising this issue is legitimately justified in asking these questions. I know what I saw from the S, uh, SGPC saying that, oh, these are people who are trying to raise political issues. How is this political? Like, this is our history. This is our, our shared identity and shared uh, heritage. We have the, you know, we have the right to be able to ask questions of what you're doing. Um, you shouldn't be able to silence those voices just because you want to get it done and make it easier for more people to roll in and give you more money. I've seen the uh, reactions from different parts of the world. I've seen people who are um, inside, like who are in Punjab, who are seeing this unfold, people who are keep going, go, 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 dig, 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 build, build, build. I've seen people who are like showing up at the site to protest. Um, I saw, uh, had a little window into a 3HO interaction that uh, was like, oh, how cool. Uh, look, there's tunnels, how cool. <laughs> and it was, it was just, it just landed as a little tone deaf. And it matters that voices from the diaspora see this a certain way. Um, pressure, for, there are parts where we don't, have power and maybe places where we shouldn't have power. Uh, the the guiding force of a lot of things that are on the ground in Punjab should be the people who live there. Like the farmers protests have a lot of support from the diaspora, but the driving force is the people who are there and who are impacted. The Garseva situation specifically, and I think this is why WSO decided to chime in as well, this is a place where there is power from the diaspora. And it's one of those things that it's it's... Your voice is what's needed here. And to say we need, and it, we're not anti-progress, and it's not bad to construct things and to build things, but it can be done with um, a historian. It can be done with someone who restores. It can be done with an archaeologist. It can be done with um, an architect. 
how cool would it be to have hybrid structures that honor the original and then also build on the function? These would be actually really incredible projects, which would obviously, even more funding would flock to them if they were done mindfully. But in the absence of being done mindfully, they're just destroying our history. Well, and, and I think the, the flip of it is that there's so much of our, our, of our built uh, heritage, which is neglected. And I think the painful part of this is that, you know, the money is being spent where it doesn't need to be spent and money is being, not being spent where it does need to be spent. And I think that is, you know, for me, one of the things that, you know, really, really bothers me is that so much, you know, and whether it comes to whether it's, um, you know, kind of more Dharma uh, Tehask spaces or, you know, otherwise, you know, sick um, historical space. There needs there needs to be a better understanding of you know kind of what our what the inventory of our historical spaces look like and how to kind of move towards uh, maintaining those. You know it, it, what you've always heard from a lot of people when they travel to Pakistan and whether or not this is true, I, I, I have never verified. But anecdotally, you always come back with people saying, "Well, a lot of the gurukar in Pakistan are better maintained in their original forms," um, and that there's an appreciation for that. Well, you know, whether that's true or not, you know, it's kind of irrelevant uh, in some ways, but it also speaks to the fact that there is a desire for people to want to see the preservation of the historical places rather than the alterations. And this is not the first time that, you know, Karseva Vali have come under um, controversy, like I said earlier. I mean, it wasn't just, um, you know, the Darshani Theory at Dantan. It was also, you know, there's been multiple instances where this has become um, controversial. And I think it's it's time that there is actually some type of accountability that is seen from, um, from, from those entities. Pegasus, sick censorship, and relationships with the government. All right, so we are doing a very shallow dive. Sometimes we do deep dives. We're, we're dipping our toe into a conversation um, that is, is big and is complicated and has it's involved six in its in international discourse. Um, so we wanted to put it on your radar as well. So Pegasus, and, and Harmony, can stop me if I get any of these details wrong. Uh, Pegasus is an invasive spyware that an Israeli company called the NSO Group put out. And it's been used by different governments and it's been really harmful. And what we recently, what recently came to our attention was that two uh, Punjabi Sikhs appeared on a leaked list of 40 India-based journalists that were potential targets of government surveillance using the Pegasus spyware. Um, so we we got that Bupinder Sajjan and Jaspal Heron, who uh, were critical of the Modi government, were on a list of people that was leaked that uh, where the government of India used this Pegasus uh, spyware to spy on them. Did I get did I get a lot of that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of my understanding of this. <laughs> Just reading, um, you know, how terrifying, you, you know, we're we probably being spied on and we don't even know it. <laughs> they're going to they're going to listen to this and be like, yeah, these guys don't know. They don't know enough about this. Let's get them. Well, we all at some base level understand that there's, you know, surveillance happening and spyware and, and a lot of that. And, and like, you know, we joke about it as we just did. But it's also terrifying to know that it is happening. Um, and the cost of uh, Pegasus and a license, one license for Pegasus is 
is mind-boggling. It, it's something like ten or fifteen million dollars per license. I could be totally wrong. Um, I could have just read that on Twitter, but um, definitely have seen different numbers out there in terms of what it costs. And so, yeah, so you know, this Pegasus project, you know, this uh, this idea of um, you know now a bunch of um, you know journalists kind of came together. This information gets leaked. There's a database. You know, ultimately, what happens when this all starts blowing up around the world? We just look at the database and say, "Hey, I wonder if there's any six on this uh, in India." And sure enough, there were. Um, and and it comes, it should come as no surprise to anybody who's following, been following along with you know the degradation of um, you know the the freedom of, of speech in, in India um, over over decades. Uh, it should be should be a surprise that you know they they surveil. I mean, it's it's a a tool that they've used um, forever, but it also does just now highlight again that, you know, there are regimes around this world um, that are targeting journalists. And it's not just India, but, it, but it's, you know, there's, there's governments everywhere. I mean, from Mexico to Morocco uh, to Saudi Arabia to Hungary, um, all, all that are, are targeting them. And in, in India, you know, looking at political opponents, but in our case, you know, we're looking at two particular sick journalists who have been active in covering the farmers' protests, who have been active in pushing back against uh, the Modi government. And this is, you know, basically like, you know, how this is going to be used. It's difficult for us to even understand, you know, what exactly the government of India is doing. But we've seen how they've targeted and, and criminalized sick dissent. And the interesting part of the story was when, you know, a former advisor to Justin Trudeau, um, where Jerry Butts takes to Twitter and, you know, kind of condemns uh, the Modi government uh, for what it's doing. And it, you know, the hypocrisy of this, Just Breed, when, yeah. when we saw that, and, and, and you saw that as well, um, yeah. you know, it, you know, maybe I'll my blood I'll, pressure. My blood pressure went up a little bit. I save I save most of my big blood pressure spikes for Terry Molesky. But um, tell tell us. Uh, so I'm going to read Gerald Butt's tweet, and then you you tell us what we know about our friend Jerry. So uh, when when it came out who was under surveillance, um, he said, "Quote: Modi's many many boosters in the West need to take a hard second look at what's going on in India." So tell us about Gerald Butts. Yeah, and so here we've got Gerald Butts, who, former chief advisor to the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, was um, chief advisor when Justin Trudeau does his ill-fated trip to India. And during that trip, Justin Trudeau has a precondition to meeting with Modi after he's been thoroughly embarrassed by Modi and as, as part of an intentional deliberative plan, um, is asked to sign a, an intelligence sharing agreement. And the idea being, you know, this is an agreement that has been presented to Canadian, successive Canadian governments to sign, but which they've refused given the fact that you can't trust intelligence that uh, originates from the government of India. It's willing to bend human rights. It's willing to acquire information through what we consider, you know, illegal means on an international level. Well, it's not reliable. So why would you take any of their intelligence? Now, Trudeau in, in that moment and, you know, presumably Gerald Butts, his, his chief advisor, says, yeah, let's sign this. Um, let's move forward. And and they do. They sign this. And at the time, the World Sick Organization, when it comes to light, you know, brings attention to this issue. The government of Canada has never answered any of our questions about this intelligence sharing agreement. We've raised our concerns about it. They've never addressed it. They don't talk about it. And yet here we see 
Mr. Butts now calling out, you know, supporters of Moldy in the West. The WSO has been raising the issue of Indian government's interference in Canada for years, for decades, and been ignored. And so to see Gerald Butts now come out um, is just the height of hypocrisy for a lot of us um, when, you know, we've been demanding that they, they take this more seriously. Because what happens, you know, the, the natural consequence of exactly what uh, the World Sick Organization feared, exactly what sick Canadians feared, you know, several months later, we see the terror report um, that was brought out by the Minister of uh, Public Safety, which now for the first time ever names sick extremism as a domestic terror threat. You know, the, the, the thread and the line from the intelligence sharing agreement to that uh, baseless, you know, factless um, accusation and statement and, you know, essentially um, targeting uh, an entire, uh, you know, religious group and uh, sex, you know, is, is, is direct. I mean, you can't deny where where most likely this information is coming from. And, this and, I, and I see this, like, I'm so I... I actually Googled Occam's razor because I don't uh, I, I wouldn't want to like do it injustice. But I only take it back a few steps. But Occam Razor, um, Occam's razor is a principle which is straight from the internet, is interpreted as requiring that the simplest of competing theories be preferred to the more complex or that explanations of unknown phenomena be sought first in terms of known quantities. So it's basically like Occam's razor says it's probably the simplest explanation. If if there's like the opposite of Occam's razor, it's it's Canada and GOI relations. If you think something is simple, if you think like, oh, six are on the terrorist list, six are terrorists, every single time you take a step back and look at how that came to be, you hit this complicated web of foreign interference. And that's where you really start to lose faith that the simplest explanation is the most obvious. And this is what happens in so um, I, I, I'm a true crime person. I get obsessed with true crime. Um, I love learning about stuff. And the the scary thing is, is that the learning about my own community's history in Canada becomes this, like, the part of my brain that, like, gets hooked on true crime is like, what? That happened? That happened? So I'm reading about the mechanisms through which foreign interference happened through bilateral intelligence sharing. And here's how it did happen in the past. So in the late 80s, early 90s, um, CSIS might be required to share something with India. India would then purposefully send Canadian intelligence um, on random. These six over here are sending guns. Those six over there are terrorists. Those six over there are doing this. And they would have to follow up on every single thing piece of intelligence that India gave them. And they went on these wild, wild goose chases and they didn't come up with anything that was substantial. And they started to realize that they were being manipulated by intelligence that was being shared from the government of India. Whereas in the meantime, they were actually having to, so if you think about sharing intelligence back and forth, they were having to share valid intelligence and they were in turn were getting fake intelligence that they knew was fake, but they couldn't actually do anything about it. This process WSO has highlighted hurts six. That's how we get end up getting framed. That's how the whole community gets maligned because government can sit there and say that person's a terrorist, that person's a terrorist, that person's a terrorist. Canada has to look into everything. For Justin Trudeau to have 
restarted this process to have gone to India. And that trip always has like adjectives, right? The disastrous India trip, the horrible India trip. Um, in that trip to have started it again, to said, all right, we're going to start sharing intelligence again, reopen that pathway for India to say that sick Canadian sick is a terrorist, that Canadian sick is a terrorist. And Gerald Butts is a part of that. And lo and behold, within minutes, we're back on the terror report without a single shred of evidence without any actual terrorism on the behalf of Canadian six. And this is what like, so when you like, every time you take a step back, every time you take a step back, there's the hand of the GOI in the Canadian experience. It's so complicated. It's very true crimey if you ever want to get into it. Uh, but the thing is, it's not like fiction or it's not someone else's life. It's the way our experience plays out here. So yeah, definitely, definitely blood pressure increasing to to see. And maybe also a little validating if Gerald Butts is now actually understanding that, because uh, I mean, in the revolving door of the Liberal Party, he's 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 going to get kicked out for one scandal and then be welcome back for in another capacity. Um, but uh, but yeah, maybe it's good to have someone who actually sees that India is not a democracy and is not doing things in a fair way. And last, but certainly not least, let's take a look at the National Summit on Islamophobia here in Canada. So uh, as we know, there was a really horrible incident, Islamophobic terrorist incident in Canada, where a Muslim family was murdered as they were out for a walk. They were run over by a car. And in response to that, there have been a lot of calls to action and there have been a lot that's been asked of the Canadian government. We talked about, I think on the last episode, we talked about how Justin Trudeau refused to admit that there was a connection between Bill 21, which bans the wearing of, of religious items, including hijab, niqab, dastad, all of that. He refused to admit that there was a link between that and Islamophobia. And now we see there's a national summit. And what uh, WSO has worked closely and successfully and multiple times with the National Canadian Council of Muslims. And they've been doing an incredible job around advocacy. And that's what we saw happening these past couple of weeks. So what is uh, what's what do you take from all of this? What do you think about Justin Trudeau all of a sudden wanting to do something? <laughs> so you know, in the same week that they do the national summit, the question was biased. Not that was not my best, not my best reporting. <laughs> but <laughs> pretend it was a was not a biased question. What do you think? Uh, you know, in the same week that they do the national summit on um, to combat Islamophobia, they also did a national summit to combat uh, anti-Semitism. And you know, the recommendations and what the government of Canada committed to, and what the Liberals committed to, was essentially the same thing coming out of both of those meetings, you know, was to engage with these communities on the government's next anti-racism action plan. That's supposed to launch, you know, at the end of 2022, look at adjustments to security infrastructures, anti-racism action programs, um, you know, build on some, you know, and, and this is build on lessons learned to improve digital literacy and tackling misinformation because, you know, earlier in the year or, or earlier, there was a lot of, effort by, you know, Muslim advocacy groups to target uh, hate organizations to have them listed as terror uh, organizations. So while they've been, you know, banned in Canada, they still continue to operate online. And the issue is that, 
you know, so for them, it's been, you know, um, status quo in terms of their operation. Nothing has changed, even though the government took um, kind of a step. Now, for me, I think the, the interesting part is what the government didn't address um, coming out of these. And, and you know, good on um, the on NCCM for putting out the recommendations. You know, they did an extensive, you know, community consultation process uh, in terms of, you know, what what do we want to see and what are our recommendations. And diving into that, there's a couple of things to me that really stood out um, that I, I want to highlight, at least for for our community, is number one, you know, they did go in there with a recommendation that the Attorney General intervene in all future cases challenging Bill 21 before the courts. The government refused to do that. The other recommendation around Bill 21 was to create a fund to help those affected uh, by Bill 21 so they can have a degree of financial security until the legislation is struck down. And the idea being that, you know, no Quebecers should have to change their chosen vocation because of discrimination. And this would help, you know, fund and provide assistance while the court challenge is pending. Again, no response from the federal government. Uh, the other really interesting part for, you know, the Sikh community is the issue that the, some of the oldest Muslim charities have been having in Canada, which is they've been targeted by the CRA. And so... NCCM, one of their recommendations was around suspending the CRA's review and analysis division, pending them doing an assessment um, within the CRA of how to take a, a you know an anti-Islamophobia lens, um, you know because CRA apparently is targeting Muslim charities uh, through the auspices of audits and the suspicion of terrorism f- funding or, or radicalization to shut them down and, and prevent them from being able to have charitable status. Now, that's something that I think, given the intelligence sharing agreement that we just spoke about, um, and for most Canadian Gordore, most Canadian Gordore, I think the majority, it's very rare that um, Gordore do not have CRA, you know, charitable status. Um, you know, they they are under the auspices of, of this of this institution. And, this is, and, and to circle back to what we were talking about before, this was one of the there were many reasons that we were hesitant to send money to people in to six in Afghanistan, including that the community themselves told us that we don't need money and we need to be, we need to alert people who are raising funds in our name. Um, but we knew that if we like money that is sent from here to Afghanistan is flagged as funding terrorist operations. It's not true if you're like we were helping Sikhs and Hindus in Afghanistan. We weren't funding terrorism, but it would have been flagged as that. And this is what's happening is the CRA is looking at Muslim groups who could be doing such incredible work and shutting them down on the basis of, oh, well, you're funding terrorism because those kind of blanket approaches are applied. Yeah, and, and I think it's something that, you know, we need to be aware of within the Sikh community because, you know, the natural extension of um you know, what we see. And, and, and again, I think, you know, now with Moldy trying to encourage uh, people in the diaspora to, to send funding through their approved channels for, you know, Gordore in India. I mean, all, all, all that's going to happen potentially is now information leaking over to Canadian government that will now target six, um, you know, based on misinformation. So there's 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 things in, in and I think lessons that we can learn, um, but also, you know, from a government perspective. So coming back to your question, you know, the government really didn't commit to doing anything. Um, you know, they they want to work across departments. They said all the right things, but, you know, no hard commitments. And I think 
having actually put forward recommendation before the government and them ref- refusing to really engage on some of the more substantive parts um, speaks volumes in terms of you know what what we can expect um, from this government. And I think having worked with like CJA and with NCCM um, on some of this anti-hate legislation, I've been there for some of those conversations. And again, I just want to give shout outs again to the National Canadian Council of Muslims because their asks have been so real and they've been so practical and it's not like difficult stuff to understand. Um, for example, when this attack happened in London, I heard the one of the imams from one of the mosques in London saying, we know, we, we've been living in fear even before this happened. We hire a police officer for our Friday prayer to come just so we can scare off people who might be thinking of doing things that are bad. And these communities are hiring police and hiring security out of fear, out of their own pocket. So NCCM was asking for tax breaks for mosques who have additional security costs because of terrorism and Islamophobia. And that that's like, yeah, do that. That's not hard to do. And they, they come up with, and having like sat in these meetings, and they, they come up with such concrete asks. And I'm looking at the list now um, of the last set of uh, policies that they put out. So municipal street harassment bylaws that address verbal assaults, um, a federal anti-Islamophobia strategy by the end of 2021. Um, provincial legislation that bars white supremacist groups from rallying on provincial property. These are really simple, concrete asks. It's absolutely something that we should be saying yes to. And I also want to point out that, like, I think this is where the Canadian Sikh experience requires so much nuance because we are working um, against terrorism in Afghanistan and with Muslim communities in Canada. It's This is never about religion and it's never about blanket approaches to anything. It's actually about looking at where our safety is and where our stories intersect and how we can lobby for other folks and lobby for our own safety. So like in this podcast alone, we're lobbying to support Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, like everyone gets ruled into WSO advocacy work. And that's why we always say we're a civil liberties organization that is based out of Sikhi and supporting Sikhs, but we support everyone. Well, I think, you know, even if you look at some of the other recommendations they made, um, making foreign qualification recognition, foreign credential recognition, a central mandate for ministries of labor. This is a huge issue in the Sikh community. Uh, it's it's an issue that our community has struggled with uh, for, for you know many decades, and it's something that we need to you know be able to have allies to go push across government. And then you know another point that they they push, which is to recruit minorities, including Muslims, into agencies, boards, and commissions. You know some of some of the you know the boards and commissions and agencies that exist, whether at a municipal level or provincial level, have massive amounts of discretion when it comes to intruding on people's lives. Um, from, you know, what tax you pay, um, having uh, agencies that actually you can appeal to in terms of the valuations of what your homes are. You know, like these are questions that will affect you and not having diverse perspectives and experiences on these agencies, boards and commissions limits uh, a a lot of their ability to actually respond to people's needs. But again, you know, I think the point you made is, is so spot on, which is there's, you know, there there is this uh, allyship that that has begun to emerge, and that we need to encourage. And you know, at the World Sikh Organization, we've we've been doing it for years. Um, 
but I think there's always more that we can do. And, and I, I, I would recommend everyone take a look and a read of the recommendations that the NCCM put forward uh, because, I, you know, this is, this is an ex- extensive document that has a lot of very, very important, um, you know, asks and issues highlighted that affect, um, you know, all of us. That's it from us at the World Tech Organization podcast, hashtag Ask Canadian Six. Thank you so much for joining us this month. We'll hopefully catch up with you again next month and hopefully with things that are a little bit more uplifting. Hopefully we'll have some of this stuff sorted out by next month. As always, everything we do at the World Tech Organization is run off of donations. So if there's anything you heard that speaks to you that you want to support, head on over to worldsick.org and you can do a one-time donation or you can sign up for our This Month program. You can follow us on any platform. Uh, we're always at worldsick.org. Thank you to Harmon for joining us as co-host this month and we'll talk to you soon. Bye, Gurjika Khalsa. Bye, Gurjiki Fateh.